believers. So wanted to just throw that out there for all of you. Okay, so we're going to now dig into our part two of our series. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to read the first 11 verses of the chapter, but we're going to kind of dig in on verses 11, 11 through 15. We're going to do a little recap from last week uh, to bring you up to speed on it. So uh, follow along. I'm reading out of the Legacy Standard, which should be up on the screen there. Starting at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions. Look at that verse, church. Knowing that affliction brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, Proven character, hope, and hope does not put to shame. Because the love of God has been poured out, poured out within our hearts, and it's through the Holy Spirit who was what? Given Given to us. For while we were still weak, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Has that changed your life knowing that? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled We shall be saved by what? His life. And not only this, notice how he keeps doing that, not only this, but we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, present tense, received the reconciliation. Boy, if the gospel's not in there, I don't know what else to tell you, church. So in our last time together, We took a peek at how God demonstrated his love towards us, even though we're sinners. And again, I want to review a little bit of verse 8 before we jump into some of the new material. You'll see some of the last week peppered through this because it's kind of like almost a repeat of what he's been saying all the way back from chapter 3 all the way through 5. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in the New Living Translation, God showed... His great love, His mega love, His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us 
while we were still sinners. <clears throat> now you see that word demonstrates. Greek word is sunistime. If you remember from last week, it's in the present tense, meaning that God is always continually, ongoingly showing His love for us. So the word has the idea of proving or exhibiting, literally standing together with, or to present as worthy. So church, consider this fact. A holy and just God who hates every sinful thought, sinful word, sinful deed that you and I do every single day still loves us sinners. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's the truth. And, and if you notice something else, the Greek word there is agape toy, the highest form of love. God's love is never predicated on our performance. should fascinate you. He's not using the word phileo love, which is brotherly love, or a storge love, the love you'd have for sisters. He's using agape love. See, agape love is an act of the will. And agape love is you're choosing to be committed and love somebody, and it's not predicated on how they treat you back. Because we'd all be burning in hell, wouldn't we? Keep that in mind. It's a sacrificial love, church. It's the highest kind. He chose to love you and I in spite of ourselves. His love is a love that gives itself to you and I who are powerless and we are ungodly, we are helpless. And as we've learned from our last times together, God knows that we are helpless in our sin. He knows how you and I have hated Him. He knows how you and I have wanted to live our own life on our own way and our own terms, and yet, in spite of how we treat Him, we are still the objects of His redeeming love, even though there is nothing lovable about us at all. Now, I know that's hard to fit in the ear, but that's the truth. That's what the Bible teaches. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God shows his love for us. How, how did the Father do that? In the death of his only unique son. And he didn't do it because we're lovable or righteous. Because if we're to be honest this morning, we are sinners and we are lawbreakers. And a sinner is the exact opposite of a righteous man. Look at slide 6 and 7. So where does it say that, Pastor Jack? Well, Romans 3.10. No, not one. It doesn't say there is none righteous except for so-and-so. It says there is none righteous, not even one. In slide 7, all of us have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. We and the sinners, all of us, are the people that Christ died for. That should impact every moment of every day of our life, should it not? See, we need to realize the sinfulness of sin. I know a lot of churches don't want to preach on sin, but sin is anything that we do that does not glorify God. See, if we realize the sinfulness of sin, church, only then can you and I begin to realize the argument that Paul is making that God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While you and I were without strength, and that we're still ungodly, while we're still sinners, the Father sent His only unique Son 
into the world to die a shameful and cruel death on my behalf and your behalf. And then we looked at Paul's letter last week a little bit in the letter of Ephesians, slide 8 through 10. Let's take one more quick peek at that before we move ahead. Because Paul really breaks it down writing in this letter to the Ephesian church, who are no different than you and I. Paul says, listen, you Ephesians, you guys, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked formerly according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says, formerly walked. If you're a believer, that's how you used to walk. The question we need to ask is, are we still walking that way, the world's way? Paul's coming clean says, listen, we too, we, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We too, we indulged in the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And we were also, by nature, children of wrath, just like everyone else. And then we see the turning point in slide 9 in verse 4. The noonie day, right? The but God. But God. Two of the most powerful words ever inscripturated. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead. Physically alive, but spiritually dead in our transgressions, which means we crossed the line in sin. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 6. He raised us up with Him. Seated us, the sinner, the lawbreaker, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 7. In the ages to come, He might show, He might reveal the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards you and I in Christ Jesus. Do you see how it all points to Christ? And then verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. doesn't say for by works. doesn't say by earning it. doesn't say by buying it. For by grace. That's unmerited favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is how all of that work on the cross, that shedding of the blood, becomes ours. For by grace you having been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is a Doron. It is a gift from God. You don't buy a gift that you're going to, you know, when you're given a gift, you give it without expecting anything in return. It's not a result of works, ergon is the work there, so that no one can boast. For we are his poema, his workmanship. Where we get our English word poem from. We are his workmanship, created. In Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared when? When did he prepare it? Beforehand, so that our way of life, we could walk in them. You're carrying about 
the death of Christ in your body every day. Church, what did we learn last week? Do we remember it all from our last time together? We were all born physically alive, obviously, but spiritually dead. This is important, church. We do not become, as I said last week, we do not become spiritually dead because we sin. No, church. We sin because we're already born spiritually dead. We inherited that sin nature that was handed down to us from our first parents. The scriptures are clear that this is the condition of every human being since the fall of mankind, which started in the garden. A person is spiritually dead while he's physically or she's physically alive. So because, because he or she is dead in his sins and trespasses, they have a dead spiritual life, alienated from God, and has no capacity on his or her own to respond. You remember, you've all, I'm sure, been to a funeral. A dead person can't make himself alive again. A person does not become a liar because the person tells a lie. No, he tells a lie or she tells a lie because he's already a liar. See, committing sinful acts doesn't make you and I a sinner. Each of us commits sinful acts because we're already sinners. We then had looked at verse 2 and learned that a dead person can only walk or live according to the course of this world in Ephesians 2 too. So that person who is dead in their sins follows the world system and the world values. And it doesn't take a rocket science to see that if you turn on your TV for any length of time. So they follow the world system values. And as of course we all know that the world's way of doing things is a way that does not submit to Christ. He follows Satan's leadership. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. So consider what we see today that reveals this. Look at slide 11 and then 12. Humanism, materialism, illicit sex. Humanism is what? Humanism places man above everything else. Humanism is man is his own source of authority. I'll do it my way. I'm not interested in your way. We'll do it my way. Materialism places a high value on material things like money, homes, cars. And then sexual perversion, which just infiltrates and dominates and permeates our society. We know that sex is used to market material things. Look at slide 12. Let's ask the questions here. Here's some acid test questions for you to ask yourself. What inconsistencies do you see currently in your own attitude towards sin, which also reveals the inconsistencies in your relationship with the Lord? Take a look at that question and think about that for a minute. What inconsistencies do you see in your attitude towards sin? Well, it's only a little sin, so it's okay which also reveals your inconsistencies in your relationship with the Lord. I know that's a tough, tough question, but it needs to be asked. And you need to take a look at your life. Psalm 139, verse 23. 
says, search me and try me, O Lord. See if there's any evil way in me. Right? Search me, Lord. The idea of searching in the Hebrew there in Psalm 139 is the idea of, Lord, keep digging deeper and keep digging deeper and keep digging deeper. Lord, what inconsistencies are, are in my attitude that I need to see that I don't see towards sin, which really reveals the inconsistency that I have in my relationship with you? In what way is lust a habit in your life? Think about that. Have you seen in your own life the same root sin that expresses itself in different ways? You know, if I only had this much more, then I'd be okay. And if I only had this much more, I'd be okay. I see people flocking if they go to Turkey Hill or 7-Eleven and they're throwing their money because they want to win that 800 and some million dollars. Because if they have that, everything will be perfect in their life. What profits a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his suke, his soul? You don't need that. That's garbage. That's window dressing. That's Satan promising freedom, but only ends up delivering you into slavery. Don't buy into the bait. So for those who are in Christ, this is how we used to walk as a way of life before we got saved. So the question this morning is, do you see any inconsistencies there? Are you still living the same way you lived before you say you got saved? And the chances are you're not saved at all. And Paul says, we also lived in the lust of our own flesh. <clears throat> Meaning, that word is epithemia. It's yearning after that which is forbidden. What are the forbidden trinkets of the world that we're yearning after? That if we think we get it, things will be better. Oh, it's quiet now, Dr. Carter. See, we're all oriented, if we want to be clean with God this morning, to our own selfish ways. We want what we want. Because our hearts are these idol-making factories. And I'm sure if we want to be honest this morning with each other and the Lord, it sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Amen. Church, think about what sins in your life right now that you know need to be put to death. Man, it got really quiet in here now, Dr. Carter. I can hear a pin drop. What sins in your life right now have to be put to death? What people in your life right now do you need to forgive? Because you don't forgive them, so you think you're empowered, but in all reality, because you're not forgiving them, you're enslaved. You see, the changing point that Paul spells out for us here, verse 4, he says, but God, God bursting on the scene, but God, his mercy towards you and I. And here's the, here's the amazing part. It's unlimited. His mercy doesn't have an expiration date on the sinner, the believer. You see, God the Father desires, church, hear me, to have the relationship with him and you and I restored and it's restored through a person whose name is Jesus Christ you see God the Father he, he did something amazing he provided a way for you and I to have our relationship with him restored so he offers forgiveness and reconciliation to the sinner who's willing to repent 
He knows who we are, and he already knew what we were going to do a gazillion years before he knit us in our mother's womb. But because of his great mercy and love for us, he did something else that's amazing. He had the penalty that my sin and your sin made pay for with his son's own crimson blood. So the judgment against you and I was satisfied through his only unique monogenes, his son, Jesus Christ. And there is absolutely, now you hear me this morning, there is absolutely no other way that it can be satisfied except through the crimson blood of Christ. A person who is dead in their sins needs to be made alive, and that's exactly what salvation brings to dead, lifeless sinners. So when a person is born again, he or she is no longer alienated from the life of God. What a blessing, church. We become spiritually alive through our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's Romans 6, which we'll be covering down the road not too long from now. So listen, this is the other important point. If you're truly born again, your life should now reveal that you are identified as somebody that belongs to Christ. Ask yourself if that's true about you. Why, why, Pastor Jack? Well, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the exact 100% same exact power that God gives each believer to walk in a new way of life. That power never ends. It's a power that never goes out. And that power's already been paid for. You don't get a bill for it. So Paul tells us that it is by grace, that's unmerited favor, that we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. God is the one who gives you and I the faith that we need to believe and respond to the gospel. Think about it. He gives you this gift of faith. And that is what you need to be able to respond to the gospel. The faith that you need to respond is a gift given to you by Christ. So when we surrender ourselves and accept the finished work of Christ on our behalf, we are then, church, we are responding by faith that God has given us through his grace. Even our ability to repent and turn away from sin is a gift from God. Hear me. A person who is spiritually dead cannot make a decision by faith unless... God makes them alive to respond to the gospel. Think about it. Why is it every week after week, you can go to any church on planet Earth, and when the gospel's presented and an altar call's presented, there are some who believe sitting in the church and some that don't. They hear the same message. They hear the same gospel preached. They hear the same truth. But what do they do? Some respond and some don't. Let's look at slide 13 14. Romans 5, 9 and 10. Much more than having now been made right, justified, declared right by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Some people say you're going to be saved from hell. No, you're saved from God's wrath. Hell's a destination. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, church. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, and he tells us how it's done right there in your Bible, through the death of his son, through that that shed blood that justifies you. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And look at the New Living Translation, slide 14. Since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. I like that. So here are two of the most important statements found anywhere in Scripture. Paul says, much more than, or having been made right. You see, you hear what Paul says next is overwhelming. Paul says, having now been justified by his blood. And listen, you listening around the world, if the church is not preaching the blood of Christ, I'm begging you, run from it. There is nothing else that's going to cleanse you and purify you and put you with the Lord except through the blood of Christ. It's important that we understand what justification is. And you should, as Christians, you should know these terms by now, especially if you've been coming here and hearing the incredible Dr. Carter preach. You should know these terms. You see, to be justified means that God declares you and I to be righteous. It is a legal term. It means to acquit. It's something that God does alone because you and I do not have a righteousness on our own. There's no act on our own by where you and I can make ourselves right with God. We've just read that. It has to be through Christ. So what does God do? He imputes or credits his son's perfect life of obedience into your account and he takes your life of sin and he credits it to Christ. It's called the great exchange. The worst about you and I gets placed on Jesus, and the best about him gets credited to you and I. I don't deserve that, do you? I don't deserve that. How's this done? How's this transaction made? Well, the text tells you, by his blood. Jesus was a propitiatory sacrifice. That lightning rod of anger that your sins and my sins produce, boom, right on top of Christ. By his blood, by his precious blood. So the Father places into your account and my account the perfect righteousness of his son Christ, and he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus puts that robe of righteousness on you, on you and I, and he says, Let me take you to the Father. Church, hear me this morning. It is God's grace. And only God's grace that even begins to make this justification possible. This justification, meaning we are declared right with the Father, comes to us by faith. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation? That's the most important question that you could ever be asked. You see, God is the one who gives us this faith to believe the gospel in the first place. So our justification, our being made right with God, is the Lord's righteousness and obedience to the law, a law that you and I know that we can never keep on our own. We break the law every day in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, and motives. 
So then it should be clear to us that it is the righteousness of Christ alone that saves us and absolutely nothing else. It is the blood, the crimson blood of Jesus Christ alone that reconciles you and I to the Father, church. And then look at the last part of verse 10. Paul says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God to come. You know, this word saved is actually used in three different tenses in the scriptures here. And you mean, well, what does that mean? Well, three different tenses. Let me go through it. First, we have been saved, past tense, meaning we've already been saved from the guilt of sin. Slide 15. Where does it say that, Pastor Jack? I'm glad you asked. Back in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified, having been made right or declared right by faith, we have peace with God through who? Jesus Christ. So first, we've been saved, past tense. That's back when you came to a saving faith in Christ. And in the Greek, that time back when you did, if you did, come to faith with Christ, still affects your life today, to the very minute, all the way through. Second, we are now, present tense, being saved from the power and pollution of sin. Remember, you and I, before we were saved, were born into sin. We were born sinners. And since the fall of Adam and Eve, we fell under the power and dominion of sin. So this, what we're talking about now, is the sanctification process that we're going through from what you are to what you're becoming. Where does it say that? I'm glad you asked again. Slide 16, Romans 6.22. But now, having been freed from sin, and you are now enslaved to God, you're a doulos to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification being set, set apart, and the outcome is what? To see whether you're dead in your sins or whether you belong to Christ. Here's the interesting part. You're going to live forever. You're either going to live with Christ in glory for all eternity, or if you die in your sins, you'll be burning in hell for all eternity. We'll look at Revelation down the road and you'll see that. It's very clear. They were cast into exodoraskatos, outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at Luke 16, right? The rich man and Lazarus, he died. The rich man died. He died a physical death. And looking up, he saw who? Abraham, afar off. He could see. He could speak. Father Abraham. My, my brothers need to hear the gospel. Well, if they didn't believe the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody they come back from the dead. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, church. So there is a day when our bodies will be delivered from sin. You die, your body goes into the ground, your spirit goes to the Lord, and then there's going to be a reuniting. And you're going to get a glorified body. That's our glorification. And third, that's the glorification when we will deliver from sin. Slide 17, Romans 8.23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons and the redemption of what? Our what? 
our body. The wrath of God through him was the other statement he made. And that wrath here speaks of the judgment that is to come. See, something is going to happen in the future, church. And, and hear me this morning. There is a day coming when God's wrath against sin and his righteous judgment will be revealed and pronounced. Make no mistake about it. God is not old with hearing aids and needing cataract surgery and glory. Please understand, there's a day coming. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're all going to have to appear before the Bema seat, the judgment seat. And every one of us is going to have to give an account of the deeds we did in the body while we were here, whether good or evil. God sees it all. Can you imagine today when every sinful, rotten thing you did is almost like on a viewer screen and you're seeing everything you did that you know was wrong and you did anyway? Oh, thank God for the blood of Christ. Amen. I would be like, please don't look. Don't even peek. Please don't do it. Church, for the born-again believer, though, he or she will be saved from that day as we've learned. So we have been justified since we are no longer as enemies of the cross. We have peace with God. Here's the question this morning. We're almost done. Do you have that peace? You see, what Jesus has done, he's already delivered us from the wrath to come. Slide 18. Look at some of these scriptures here. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word believes him who sent me, present tense, has what? Eternal life. That person doesn't come into judgment, but is passed out of life to death. See, that judgment was already taken care of with Christ at the cross. So look at slide 19 and 20. Let's look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been, Harris tense, having already been reconciled, we shall be saved by what? His life. How about the NLT? Look at slide 20. Since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. Well, while we were without strength, dead in our sins, ungodly sinners, enemies of the cross, that was our position past tense in God's eyes. It's interesting, the word enemy in the Greek, think of the word enemy for a minute. There are people right now that all of us in this room have people that we know that we almost actually consider our enemies. The Greek word enemy is a very, very harsh, heavy word. You see, in the original language, it has the idea of ongoing active hostility, seeding hate, are there people that you have seething hate for? Are there people that in your spirit, in your mind, you dream up of how you would want to destroy them and harm them because of the way they are? He's using those words about our relationship that we had with the Lord, enemies. 
The sinner cannot be said to be a friend of God because he opposes what God stands for. Look at slide 21. The sinner rebels against God. The sinner rejects God. God, I don't want anything from you. I want things just my way. The sinner, particularly when things don't go the way he or she wants it to go, will curse God. Did you ever become the judge, jury, and executioner of God in your mouth, in your mind? Here's the question. When you're out in public, is God's name safe in your mouth? Are other people's name safe in your mouth? I got quiet again, Dr. Carter. I don't know. But the sinner is in rebellion against God. He's, he or she's rejecting God, cursing God, or ignoring God. God gives you chance after chance, or I should say opportunity after opportunity, but you still want nothing to do with them because you like things the way they are, the way you want them to be for yourself. How about this? The sinner disobeys God. God says, thou shalt not, and yet you're doing it anyway. Fighting against God. Denying Him. How amazing is it? He dies on the cross for you, and when you're with your unsaved friends who don't believe in God, are you going along with them or are you defending His name? Is God's name safe in your mouth? But I want you to notice something. Look how God initiates the change in the sinner's status. There's a change. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. There's your Eugalian. There's your good news. There's your gospel. What does that word reconciliation mean? You have to go back and say, okay, you know, Paul, 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 what did, what did you mean, Paul, when you used the word katalasso, reconciliation? This word reconciliation back then, basically, kata alasso, means to change. You see, the idea here is of two parties that are enemies and at war with each other, having a change of mind and attitude towards each other. There's a reconciliation, a bringing back, a change of enemies to friendship. There is a change, a kata alasso, in the relationship between God and man. But here's the thing. Jesus is the agent in the reconciliation process, not you and I. He's the one. The Holy Spirit wakes you up. You come to a saving faith because of his blood. And now all of a sudden, because Jesus is the agent in the change, you are now being reconciled to the Father. Hear me. Every aspect, every part of a person's conversion, every part of a person's newly transferred life is accomplished only one way, and that's through God's sovereign will. That's the only way. I like what John MacArthur said. Look at slide 22. MacArthur says this. Reconciliation is not something man does it's something he receives. It is not what he accomplishes, but what he embraces. Reconciliation does not happen when a man decides to stop rejecting God, but when God decides to stop rejecting man. 
Ooh. It is a divine provision. Let me say that again. It is a divine provision by which God's holy displeasure against alienated sinners is appeased. His hostility against the sinner is removed. And harmonious relationship between him and them is now established. See, reconciliation occurs because God was graciously willing to design a way to have all the sins of those who are His removed from them. I could never begin to say it that good. That's exactly what we're learning right now. Slide 23. Let's back it up with Scripture. God was in Christos, in Christ. That's the Father was in Christ, reconciling, katalaso, changing that relationship, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us, church, the word of reconciliation. So God takes you and me, who are sinners, and he declares you and I to be righteous in his sight. The Father pronounces that he now has nothing against us. God has already decided our fate and our destiny and our justification. The judgment has already been carried out. The punishment we deserved, Christ took on himself. Do we yet understand how incredible and amazing this justification is? Do we yet understand the love that God has for us? And has that love He has for us transformed your life? Do you love and communicate with people differently than you used to before you got saved? How did He reconcile them to Himself? Well, we've just learned. He does not credit our sins to our account. Again, the worst about me was placed on him. The worst about you was placed on Christ. And the best about him was placed on you and I. So when the Father sees us, he sees his Son. You see, the law demands that a punishment must be handed down, church. We are lawbreakers. We've sinned. We've broken the law, and the law demands justice. So God takes every law-breaking thing that we've ever done, past, present, future. And he says, listen, I'm going to take all of this, I'm going to put it on my son. His blood's going to be the payment. You can walk out of the courtroom free because he's paid it all. Even though you don't deserve it, he's done it. Slide 24 and 25. Let's back it up with scripture. He made him, the father made the son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Or the NLT, I like how the NLT puts it. God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that you and I could be made right with God through Christ. That's what Good Friday was all about. Imagine this church. Jesus endured the shame and the suffering on the cross for you and I. 
No wonder Paul, with his, his emotion, you can just imagine in Romans 5.10, much more than, much. Can you just imagine? He's going, church, much more than. Listen to this. But for those who have been sadly taught that they can lose their salvation, we can claim the words of Christ. Look at slide 26. Listen to me this morning. You can never lose your salvation when you're truly born again. Don't let any false prophet or pastor or church tell you you can lose your salvation. Well, how, does, how can we back that up? Well, I'm glad you asked. How about John 10, 28? I give eternal life to them. They will what? They will what? Never perish. And no one will what? No one will ever be able to snatch them out of my hand. Nobody's more powerful than Jesus. You have been saved from all eternity. In fact, God already planned your salvation before He even invented time. Well, you may be asking, where does it say that? We covered this last week. Let me finish up with this real quick. Slide 27. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. He did what? He chose us and Him. When did that happen? When? Before what? Before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy. That's hagias, set apart and blameless before Him in love. Look at verse 5. He did what? He predestined us to be adopted as sons. And done through who? The adoption agency was Christ to himself. According to whose will? The kind intention of his will. Boy, I'm making a lot of people mad around the world today. I want you to think deeply about this. I'm, I'm seriously almost done. I have about 17 more pages. No, I'm kidding. God, according to his good pleasure, as the text states, and entirely apart from anything that you and I could ever say or do, chose who would be saved before the foundation of the world. That's what we just read. That's what the Bible says. He did this in spite of knowing that even before he created us, we would be his enemies, we would be estranged from him, and we would even hate him. And so last week we looked closely at that word chose. The Greek word is ek, meaning out of, lego. It's in the aorist tense, meaning past tense, and it's also in the middle voice. That means that God made that decision to do that of his own free will without any outside interference. Nobody whispered in his ear or tried to conjure him. The middle voice is basically he made the decision on himself. Nobody persuaded him to do it. By his sovereign election, those who were saved were placed in eternal union with Christ before he ever created the heaven and earth. Otherwise, how do we get around Ephesians 1, 4, and 5? I don't know. The Father designed the church, not man, which is Christ's body, before there was even time. Think about it, church. We belong to God before time was created. Our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation world. Well, Pastor Jack... Where does it say that? You're so wrong. Okay, I'll give you some more verses. Look at Revelation 13.8. Load it up. All who dwell, oikion, on the earth will worship him. That's actually the beast. Everyone whose names has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who had been slain. 
There was a book. It tells us. The book was written before the foundation of the world. It tells us. It's called the life of the Lamb or the book of the Lamb who had been slain. So every human being that is not born again and saved is going to worship the beast. And when we down the road, when we get into eschatology, we're going to read that so you'll see that with your own eyes. It's happening already today. It's not something that, that should be shocking to us. So even though man's will is bound in sin, God gives man the will and ability to surrender his life to Christ. Man is dead in his sins until the Lord, as the King James says, quickens him or makes him alive spiritually so that he can surrender and repent of his sins and come to a saving faith in Christ alone. How about slide 29? How about John 6.37? All that the Father gives me... By the way, you're called the bride of Christ in Revelation 20. Remember that. All that the Father gives me will what? Come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not what? Don't let anybody tell you you can lose your salvation. I can't find anywhere where God casts a believer away from him and makes him burn in hell. I can't find it anywhere. How about slide 30, Romans 5.11? All right, two minutes. And not only this, but we exalt or we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You know what? I'm going to stop right here. I'll pick this up next time I'm up because I know I gave you a lot to fit in here. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. I know I gave you a lot. And you can go back and hear this message. Hear Dr. Carter's messages on sermon audio. I want you to really, really take a moment because you have no clue if today is your last day on earth. I don't have any clue. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you to do business with God this morning. I am insignificant. I am packaged dirt just like anyone else. There's nothing about me that is any different than anybody else. And on judgment day, I would be standing right next to you. But I'm going to ask you some questions. If you were to get killed today, drop dead of a heart attack, run over by a car, whatever, if you were to die today, and today was the last day you're alive, and you found yourself ushered before the Lord. And the Lord looked you dead in the eye, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? Ask yourself, based on what you've learned today, what your answer would be to that question. That's a really, really important question. If you were to drop dead today, you drank yourself, you sucked the booze down, and you killed your life, you did the heroin with fentanyl, whatever it is you did, you know, and you're dead. And you're standing before the Bema seat. And he asks you that question. What would your answer be? Because there's only one correct answer based on what the Bible teaches us. The only answer can be is, Jesus, you died on that cross and you paid my sin debt in full and I surrender my life to you. If you have not done that you listening around the world whatever country you're in if you have not done that i want to ask you to do something i want you to surrender your life to christ as he has now been freely offered to you in the gospel if you were going out and living every day like he doesn't exist living the same way you live before you ever got saved still getting plastered and high all the time sleeping with people you're not married with whatever the sin is 
and you're living exactly the way you did, you are not born again. Because according to the scripture, when the Holy Spirit indwells you, he starts to transform and change your life to look more like Christ. He uses that great Ginsu knife called the Word of God, and he starts to strip away those areas that were destroying your relationship with him. So if you're here this morning, I want to ask you to please, now is the time. Now is the time for you to get right with God. You do not get a second chance. It is appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. Please understand, there's no second chance. There's not one shred of information in the Bible about a place called purgatory because it doesn't exist. I'm sorry, my friends. It doesn't exist. The Bible says, not Pastor Jack, not Pastor Carter. The Bible says it is appointed once, one time, for a person to die and then the judgment. That's it. You will stand before holy God and you will have to give an account for every sinful, rotten, filthy deed you and I have ever done. Now either that is going to be paid for by the shed crimson blood of Jesus Christ or you're going to pay for it and be cast into hell for all eternity. And the only reason you will believe anything I told you based on the authority of what the Bible says is because the Holy Spirit has now woken you up and you will now go from an unbeliever to a believer. That's what happened to me. I didn't believe all this. If you would have seen me when I was 17, 18, or 20, I would have told you you'd need your head examined. And I probably used, would have used colorful metaphors too. So I can tell you, the only way you become a believer is because the Holy Spirit makes you alive. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. So with all eyes closed, if you are here this morning, I want to encourage you right now. This could be the last day of your life. Surrender your life to Christ. Repent of your sin. Confess it. He already knows it anyway. Confession's for your benefit, not his. He knew you were going to sin before he made you. Just tell him that you're a sinner. Confess what you've done. Ask him to forgive you. Place your faith and trust in the finished work of what Jesus has done for you while you still have time. The fact that he loves you is enough for you to hear this message means he's still giving you time. But that clock's going to run, that chronos, that clock's going to run out. And Father, I pray for everyone here today that if they have not surrendered their life to you and you are effectually calling them out of darkness to yourself, Lord, that they would now place their faith and trust in you. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shake hands, meet and greet, and line up for an awesome meal.